Hello, everybody. Scott Burnside here, and time for another edition of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. And I go immediately to my good friend, Pierre Lebrun. Pierre, I, you know, this season in the NHL has been off the charts in terms of news. And it's, you know, for people like you and I who, you know, we're right about it, we talk about it, um, it, it has been... I, I don't know that I've seen uh, recall a season where there's been this much stuff that happens that generates the the kinds of discussions that are going on around the league as we speak. It's not even December. Four coaches fired, and now shockingly, one general manager. As uh, we're chatting uh, a day or so after the dismissal of Ron Hextall, the Flyer great and uh, former. Flyer GM, and uh, we're going to talk to your colleague from TSN, Frank Cervalli, a guy who knows Philly very, very well. But but before we we bring Frank in, it, it, it's just, can you recall the, a season like this, like what that stuff has just happened so quickly, of a really monumental um, scope? I think it's cyclical, Scotty. You know, I think there are years like this, and you got years like last year where not a single coach got fired during the regular season. Until Alain Vigneault was let go in the last weekend by the Rangers. I, I just think it's cyclical that way. And, you know, if you look at Ron Hextall's firing, it was stunning to everyone, especially to himself, I'm told, who didn't, he did not see it coming. But he isn't, he was in his fifth year. And, you know, I'm not convinced that I would have fired him. I, I kind of like a lot of the young pieces that he, ha- he had in place there. But whenever you get into your fifth year, it starts to be a time when ownership looks at where your team is. You know, that's a half decade. That's, that's, that's time where you've had your full imprint on where the team is. And obviously the flyers felt they were way below where they should be at this juncture. Yeah. Well, and I, I, maybe it's a function of, um, and we've talked about it a lot already this year with, you know, as I mentioned, with four coaches already being replaced uh, in the first, what well, happened over really a, a four week period of time. Um, the fact that the standings are so compressed, this is, you know, even teams like Los Angeles, and we're going to be talking to uh, our colleague Lisa Dillman, who covers the Kings. And even though that team is, you know, in obviously in a period where, they have to whether it's rebuild or retool, whatever the term you want. Um, you know, as we're speaking, lowest team uh, winning percentage in the NHL right now as we're chatting. But still, you know, like no team is out of it at this stage. And so maybe, well, I'll ask it as a question: Do you think that that has has been a catalyst to the kinds of things we've seen? And whether it's Ron Hextwald being dismissed, whether it's the four coaches, including a future Hall of Famer and Joel Quenville, the teams are just saying, hey. Uh, not happy and things can change on a dime here. And I'm, you know, we're not prepared to wait things out five or six months or the off season or whatever it is. I think the hardest thing for a lot of people to wrap their minds around, whether it's owners, fans, media, you name it, is that in a league where more than ever there is parity, you automatically assume you should be on the right side of it. Right. <laughs> no, I'm, but but I mean, yeah, this is the, the weird thing is, is that it's never been more true how little is separating all these teams in this league. I mean, every night is a gong show. Flip a coin and who's going to beat who. And I think when you're a team near the bottom of the standings, you don't understand from ownership on down why you're not doing better because everyone's supposed to be even. 
And it's a weird thing to talk about, but I remember when the cap came in in 0506, I had a general manager predict this to me. He said, everyone thinks this is great, and in many ways it will be because um, it will really narrow the gap between the have and have-nots. But one of the things that's going to happen is when you b- truly believe that there's going to be parity and that everyone has a shot, you're going to be in trouble if you're one of the teams that isn't having a shot <laughs> under that premise. Right. And, right. I think, and I think Philadelphia, is that's a great example. You know, they they made the playoffs last year, and and I think if your ownership there, you're probably thinking every single year has to be a step in one single direction and never backwards. And And so when you get off to this kind of start, you're thinking, well, what the heck is going on? And again, I, I think it's a bit knee jerk. I think if you look at a lot of the pieces Ron Hextall has put there, put together there, man, he's got a lot of, there's a really good young nucleus and, you know, you're hearing different versions of why he might've been let go. Some of it is, you know, perhaps not sharing his vision with enough people day to day and kind of, you know, working on his own a lot. Um, which is interesting because if you remember Scotty, Ron Francis, fair or unfair, that was some of the backdrop to his firing in Carolina in terms of maybe not sharing enough day to day with his new owner in Carolina and so on. And so what is, is this where it's all headed now where a GM in the NHL has to learn to manage up as well as managing down, uh, in terms of his day to day operation. Yeah, no, well, I think that's, and I mean, it's probably, it's probably always been true that you have to, you know, you have to be careful of, you know, depends on you know, who your owner is and what their demands are. But, and maybe it goes back to what you're saying is that every owner believes that they should, their team should be on the right side of the, of the parity line, right? Right. Like if, if everyone's close, well, why aren't we in the top eight or whatever it is, uh, you know, in, in terms of, of the closeness of that league. And if you, if you can't deliver that as a coach or a GM, um, then certainly owners are going to want to know why. Maybe they want to know more about what you're doing every single day to stay on the right side of that fine line um, than has been the case in the past. So that may be it too. I agree, my friend. <laughs> and that's probably a good time to bring in our good friend, Frank Servali of TSN to chat about all things Flyers, and we're going to get to, you alluded to it, my friend, uh, or we've talked about it before we started tape, the William Nylander deadline looming. So let's talk to uh, to Frank Cervalli about that. All right. As promised, joined by the king of Philadelphia himself, Frank Cervalli. There's actually not a king of Philly, is there? There's sort of, you might be the more like the mayor. You're like the king. Well, actually, the king of Kensington. You, Pierre, you remember, remember that old show, the CBC show, Al Waxman? Uh, that's still a saying among a lot of Canadians, I guess, especially Toronto people, the king of Kensington. That's like when you walk into a bar and, and there's a, a person who everyone knows in the bar. You know, I don't like, know what you're talking about, but anyway, well, go ahead. Yeah, so let's like, say that happened to me. Like, like you at Shales in Pittsburgh, Scotty. <laughs> you, you'd be the king of Kensington. That's like an expression. Yeah. <laughs> the only problem, guys, is if you're from Kensington, you're in Philly, you don't want to be the king of Kensington. It's the heroin capital of the East Coast right here in my city. So that's wow. the one title mm-hmm. I really prefer not to have. Oh, okay. well, that's, that's good to know. <laughs> it is good. To, I'm making note, note to self, stay away from Kensington uh, 
district of Philadelphia. Because uh, I'm I'm going to actually come into Philadelphia, Frank, uh, before Christmas to work on a couple of stories. And uh, whether whether the recent changes in Philadelphia will affect that or not, I'm not sure. We'll have to we'll have to yeah, figure it out. Yeah, what are you going to have to write about? There's nothing <laughs> happening with this team. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so and, and actually, as we're taping this, it, it continues to be. Um, you know, sort of an ongoing story with Philadelphia. Pierre and I were talking in the, just as uh, before we, we looped you in, Frank. Of course, um, Ron Hextall being dismissed. Uh, team president Paul Holmgren, the man that Ron Hextall replaced as team GM five years ago, um, give or take, uh, is now searching for a new GM who will um, come in and, and uh, presumably without any real ties to the organization. At least that seems to be how things are going to go. Um, uh, to, to start with. And then today, before this, uh, the taping of this episode, um, Chris Pryor, the assistant GM, was uh, dismissed. And Gord Murphy, an assistant coach, uh, was also let go by the team. Um, Frank, what's a, is there a way, as a guy who's been in Philly for a long time, you've covered the team um, closely and before taking on your job at uh, TSN as a national guy, but is there a way to describe what this, the last... 24, 48 hours have been like in Philadelphia if you've been a, if you're a Flyers fan. <laughs> a bloodletting that I think is just really getting started because at the end of this, Dave Haxtell's fate is still in the hands of whoever becomes the new GM, as Paul Holmgren so eloquently said on Tuesday. So uh, to me, the reaction from fans has been that uh, they've gotten the wrong guys, that they made a mistake in firing Ron Hextall. They seem seem to be on board with the plan that, you know, people were waiting if there was an assistant coach to be fired for it to be Ian LaPerriere because of his work with the penalty kill, which has been uh, in the bottom five of the league for a long time. And to me, I, Scotty, I, I think you hit it on the head with your piece on the athletic about Ron Hextall and the inclusion factor, because that's, really what hasn't been talked about that's gone on behind the scenes it became a really toxic situation in philly with ron kind of bunkering down and having a really tight inner circle uh that really in my estimation just included um assistant gm chris Pryor, who was also fired and and perhaps dean lombardi who of course he was molded in the shape of uh, his mentor from los angeles so um, those were kind of the three guys that ran the flyers without a lot of outside input from people that are supposed to be part of the process, including CEO, Dave Scott, president, Paul Holmgren, even at times, from what I understand, Dave Haxtell, the coach himself, who you see get to flex his muscles a little bit, certainly with the statement from Paul Holmgren saying, wait a second, uh, this was done in close con- consultation with Dave Haxtell to fire Gordon Murphy. So, you know, there's change abound here, quite obviously, and, and Chris Pryor and anyone that was connected to that, that bunkered-down mentality had to go. And I certainly understand that. It'll be, you know, refuted from the public because they don't understand and see what happens. They just see the draft record and see that Chris Pryor had done a great job. And I'm sure this was a tough firing for Paul Holmgren had being so close to Chris Pryor one of his top deputies for a number of years, but this is a really interesting situation that's now kind of gripped the rest of the National Hockey League uh, because people are wondering what the heck's happening. 
Yeah. Well, Pierre, you've been and you've been right on this, of course, since since the news broke and um, identified uh, a short list that uh, that is believed that Paul Holmgren is looking at. And I, I think in the in the past, there has been this notion that the Flyers were were an organization that you know, loyalty was really important to them. Of course, the past um, having won two Stanley Cups in the mid 1970s and, and not been able to to win another since the, the past you know that's sort of what they have to hang on to in terms of past glory um but you think of of the you know the the people who have been so instrumental in that organization over the years bobby clark who for you know went from being the the stanley cup captain to being uh, the team's gm for years and still remains part of the organization paul holmgren's a player um you know with a with a great profile within the organization and has been you know, within the part of the executive team for years and years now. And, but it's, does it surprise you that Paul Holmgren made a real strong point of saying, listen, we're, we are going to be looking outside the organization for whoever replaces Ron Hextall. Is, is it a surprise? And, and maybe how important is it for this team to move forward and maybe take that next step to getting back to contender status? Well, I think over the years, sometimes you can accuse the Flyers of being Oilers East in terms of what we used to criticize the Oilers a lot about in terms of hiring former players and so on and, and having to break out of that. And I think the Flyers have done that too. But, and Frank knows this better than me as a guy who lives there and grew up with the Flyers, that there's also a point of pride in that with the Flyers over the years, that when the late Mr. Snyder was still around, that I think it was a point of pride that they took care of their own and, and, and you know, had the Bobby Clarks and Paul Holmgrens of the world not only stick around but continue to be important voices. And even to this very moment, we know that Paul Holmgren is running the GM search, but also in consultation with Bobby Clark, among others. Yeah. So that's still there. But uh, I think... It's it's a good thing that Paul Holmgren has told other people, from what we understand, that he wants a fresh perspective in his new GM. You know, wants doesn't want someone with Flyers ties. Needs new blood, fresh blood, uh, a new way of doing things. And uh, to me, that can only be construed uh, as a positive. I think if you're trying to find a new direction, um, I, I do think it's interesting. Uh, as I reported the other night, that Paul Holmgren did phone Dean Lombardi on Tuesday morning and ask and asked them to stay on board uh, to help with the GM search. And I only find it interesting because Dean Lombardi obviously is very close to Ron Hextall, as Frank just talked about. But Dean Lombardi is also very close to Holmgren and Clark. So this would have been a really tough emotional week for Dean Lombardi because it was Bobby Clark who brought in Dean Lombardi 15 years ago to the Flyers' fold as a pro scout when Dean Lombardi was fired as GM of the San Jose Sharks, and Dean Lombardi's never forgotten that. And it's why he came back again this time to Philadelphia after being fired in Los Angeles. There's a real deep connection to Clark, to Holmgren, to Hextall, and so uh, that would have been, I'm sure, a, a tough call for Lombardi to decide where he was in all this, other than the one thing for sure is that he would have never wanted to be a candidate himself. Uh, to replace Hextall, I would have never felt right for him. Yeah, it, Frankie, it's uh, it's it's there's so much, so many moving parts to this, and uh, I'm wondering whether you're surprised at, you know, the fact that Dave Hextall, who is, 
you know, was Ron Hextall's signature hire in the uh, summer, the off season of 2015, uh, coming out of the University of North Dakota. And, and, you know, at the time, I think there were a lot of people who wondered in going back to Pierre's point that would, this was an, this was an off the grid kind of hire for Ron Hextall and for the flyers, right. A guy with, with no NHL background. And um, I, you know, part of maybe what has led the flyers to this point is that they have really struggled with their consistency at times under Dave Hextall. They've sometimes been wildly successful would they have a 10 game winning streak or whatever one of the longest winning streaks of the season they have also had huge losing stretches um and yet he's a guy who remains the head coach and and you know even further backdrop uh, they play a game the day after ron hextall is uh, is dismissed looked like they should have an easy time with the ottawa senators and somehow let it slip away uh with late goals in the third period and then and then losing in uh overtime and I wonder are you surprised that through it all that Dave Haxall still is there and maybe what your sense of is you know how does this play out for Dave Haxall and uh, and whoever the new GM is as we move uh, through this season I'm surprised that they've let him dangle like this one way or the other like either make a decision to fire him and move on and clean house all at once or make a really firm statement and say, much in the same way, coincidentally, that the Minnesota Wild did with Bruce Boudreaux once Paul Fenton was hired, saying, Bruce Boudreaux is going to be our coach. So if you're the new GM, you kind of need to be on board with that and see it play out. I, you know, And watching this all kind of unfold and, and listening to Paul Holmgren speak yesterday, I would say that they think that Dave Haxel is a competent coach and can win that they think that being four points out of a playoff spot heading into Tuesday night's game, the first of the post-textile era, given the crappy goaltending that they've gotten, dead last in save percentage, five goalies this year, that there is something going on there. There is something to to build from. So um, I'm just surprised that they haven't been more firm one way or the other. They're clearly, you know, as to use the term that Paul Holmgren used, they're kicking the can down the road, allowing this to be the decision of, the next GM, but I wouldn't be surprised if whoever's hired gives Dave Haxtell some time to figure this out, meaning maybe until the end of the season before making some sort of decision. So part of it too is who are you going to hire? And I know Flyers fans are so excited about the potential or possibility of Joel Quenville, who CEO Dave Scott mentioned by name, uh, someone that they talked about already. Um, I know that they're excited by that, but there's no guarantee that Joel Quenville wants to come to Philly if that were even to be the choice of the next GM. So lots of things to unpack there from the coaching standpoint, but you know, Dave Haxel, they clearly like, and other teams have followed importantly kind of in that mold that Ron Haxel ultimately became the the trendsetter for when you look at um, Montgomery in Dallas and you look at, at Quinn in New York. I mean, these are guys that have done and made the same jump that, you know, when the Flyers hired Haxel, it seemed to be kind of out of the blue. Yeah. Pierre, do you think that helps in terms of the, the GM search where we're basically that's that, that becomes part of the, the opportunity for whoever takes the job, whether it's a guy like Chuck Fletcher or, you know, I know Mark Hunter's name is out there. And uh, is that, do you think that's, that becomes an attractive quality for someone who's coming in 
that could potentially replace Ron Hextall. The fact is that that decision is going to be theirs, and whether they make it right away in terms of Dave Hextall or whether it's something that can happen in the offseason, but the fact is they get to choose. And and sometimes, it, as Frankie pointed out, that isn't that's not always a dynamic when when you have a new GM. Well, first of all, I do think Chuck Fletcher absolutely is a prominent candidate, as a lot of people have mentioned. But, you know, don't forget where Chuck Fletcher started and the connection to Bobby Clark and those things. But also, you know, uh, I think Chuck Fletcher has shown in his past as GM in Minnesota that he's not afraid to make big trades. And clearly, and Frank was there at the news conference, I think action is the key word for whoever gets that GM job in Philadelphia, I think. the big boys running the Flyers want to see some action. Um, now, here's the thing I would tell you about Hackstall is that, and, and, you know, if I was a GM taking over a team in midseason, I would never fire the coach if I was inheriting a coach that year. I would always keep that bullet in, in the chamber if I'm a GM. Now, that's a bit self-serving, I know, but why would you be in a hurry to make that move when you know it's a move you still have in your back pocket at some point? So, to me... I think it'd be kind of silly to come in and fire a coach I don't even know. I would let him coach the rest of the year and figure that out in the offseason. Secondly, if Joel Quenville really is at the top of the list, your best chance to hire Joel Quenville, I think, is in the offseason. It seems more and more like Quenville wants to take the rest of the year and decompress, which I think, by the way, is is absolutely the way to go for him. Um, Every coach should do that after a long run somewhere. I think you need that time away. Um, so for all those reasons, I, I think it would behoove the new GM in Philadelphia to be patient there. But we just talked about one thing, which is seemingly uh, the frustration uh, at the helm of the Flyers with Ron Hextall not making enough moves of late. And and so where does the coaching decision stand and all of that? I guess, you know, that's a question for you, Frank. They just want someone from a GM perspective, as you said, with balls the size of a dump truck. Like, that's what they want is someone to come in. They're saying, we want, they very clearly, you know, point blank, we didn't want to get to the February 25th trade deadline and have that pass us by. My understanding is that potentially there was something that was on the table for Ron Hextall in the last couple weeks that would have involved trading, you know, this was a high-value asset that would have been coming to the Flyers in exchange for prospects that he had coveted and or picks that he was simply against doing. And that also kind of contributed to the friction that existed. They felt like this team in year five of the Hextall plan should have been further along. And, you know, I think people have presented the situation as an either-or that you look at it and you say, well, is he going to be, is this new GM going to be along the lines of the super aggressive Paul Holmgren scorched earth trade, everything we have to go for it, which the flyers have been for so long or the Ron Hextall, Mr. Patient, not make any trades to really improve this team in the here and now. And I think the answer is that you can have someone that is in the middle of that, that, you know, is aggressive, but also is understanding and keeping the long view in mind at the same time. So I think that's, you know, where, what the Flyers are looking for, you know, in the five-year plan of whoever they're hiring, but right in the beginning to be aggressive to put this team and give them a shot to make the playoffs, fix the goaltending first, then see what you can do to improve around the trade deadline. And, 
you know, the other thing I just wanted to bring up quickly, as, as you said, Pierre, like, I, I think the major unwritten part of this story with the Flyers is Bobby Clark's involvement in the entire thing. I mean, he's played a central role. Not only was he a confidant for Ron Hextall at times, you know, throughout the, his process as GM and tenure, but he's also really now playing a significant role in the search, I would say almost as much as Paul Holmgren at the same time leading this team forward. It's kind of amazing for a guy that's been out of the chair for 11 years now and has kind of kept a peripheral approach to the team. He didn't. He wasn't around a lot when Paul Holmgren was in the chair. He was a guy that was spent most of his time in Florida, and he spent a lot of time here recently. And you mentioned the connections to Chuck Fletcher, obviously being on his staff in Florida as a junior, junior guy in the early 90s when Chuck was young. There's that connection, but I think there's also a deeper connection that um, you know people might not realize is that when Bob Clark was really breaking into being a GM in this league, he remembered how Cliff Fletcher, Chuck's father, treated him in those meetings. He treated mm-hmm. him like an equal and helped include him uh, into the big boys group. And that's something that Bob Clark, I don't think, has ever forgotten. And if he gets the opportunity to repay the favor to a guy like Chuck, who he obviously thinks highly of, and Paul Holmgren's gotten to know over the years as a counterpart, then I think that's certainly part of it. Yeah, and I would and I would add to that that I remember from over the years when Dean Lombardi was GM of the LA Kings that there seemed to be a real respect factor and and great communication between Chuck Fletcher and Dean Lombardi as as adversaries and 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 colleagues in the GM world. And I always got the sense that those two guys really got along. And again, you know, if you know, with Dean Lombardi now also part of the council for Paul Holmgren and Bobby Clark and the GM search. I mean, I think that's worth considering as well, whether it ends up being Chuck Fletcher or, or Mark Hunter or someone else, you, to Frank's point, you're always trying to think about the guys that are counseling the decision makers, right? What do you think of this guy? What do you think of that guy? Well, it's always important to think, what do they know of him? And what was, what is their past interaction with them? And who would, who would, who would they be, talking to about these people and so it's always fascinating to do that yeah um all right just before we let frank go and before we bring to a close the first segment of two man advantage the podcast and and i know pierre you and i you and i talked about this and the history of this podcast is that as soon as i say the name william nylander he will of course resolve his situation i don't know what will happen but as soon as i mention here, something will happen which uh, which will overtake this podcast and uh, it's happened to us before my friend i believe eric carlson did it to us and um but anyway I, I felt we would be remiss especially given that we have frank with us um and you guys both work for tsn the the sports network in canada and i had to ask a question are, are you breaking into regular programming on a, an hourly basis now with nylander updates will there be a william nylander all day broadcast schedule as we head towards the December 1st, 5 p.m. Eastern deadline, after which, if he's not signed, if he's not part of an NHL roster, he can't play in the NHL this season. Um, Frank, let's start with you. Are you surprised that as we get into the final 72 hours, give or take, um, leading up to that deadline on December 1st, that, that we're still talking about William Nylander? Or did you did you imagine that it might become one of those brinksmanship-type 
deals between the Leafs and William Nylander, the unsigned restricted free agent. Well, part of me is surprised just because it's unprecedented, right? We've never had a player that's an RFA in the salary cap era take it to the limit like this. And I think the other part of me that isn't surprised is the fact that there's so much riding on this for both sides. This is Kyle Dubas's chance to make a statement to the rest of the NHL and to agents that he's not going to be pushed around, which I think that message has already been delivered given how long that this has gone on. But the other part of it is what's at stake for William Nylander, not just his own personal financial security moving forward, but for all RFAs that are so closely watching the situation, guys that are going to be up, the incredible class that Pierre has been writing about um, next summer. I mean, there's so much in play here that I understand why, especially from the Maple Leaf salary cap perspective and the guys that they need to re-sign, why this is dragged out because neither side can really afford to lose here. Yeah. Pierre, and Frank alluded to it, but you've done yeoman work looking at the bigger picture on the, you know, what does this mean for other restricted free agents and their teams moving forward? Do, do you think there is a, can you draw a line from William Nylander to this, this other group moving forward or is each one, I use the snowflake analogy. Is each one completely unique, or is there, like Frank alluded to, is 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 what we're seeing here going to set some sort of template for what happens uh, as we move forward for for some high end uh, restricted free agents that are, are are going to be in play in the coming months? Yeah, no. Everyone I've talked to, from agents to other executives on teams, are absolutely eyeing this as as an impactful moment and. It's not that it's the first one. I mean, really, I think you have to start the story at Leon Dreisaitl. And, you know, Leon Dreisaitl might have been maybe this situation had it not been that the Oilers, you know, uh, I, I don't want to say gave in, but the Oilers accepted, you know, eight and a half a year over eight years Mike Liu, from Mike, the age of Mike Liu in that camp for Dreisaitl. I mean, it's a contract that at the time really stunned a lot of people, even though Dreisaitl was coming off a terrific playoff. My point being that, that that could have been a drawn-out uh, contract negotiation way into the fall had really the, the Oilers not said, you know what, I mean, let's let's just do this because we know where this is headed if we don't. And, and obviously the Oilers feel that Dreisaitl is a special player and is going to live up to that contract. But my point is, it just so happens Nylander is the first one, you know, to go to, the, to this step, but it may not be the last one. I mean... And I've I've had agents speculate that they think some of these guys, it, it's going to get nasty because this is the new battlefront. The teams and agents are identifying these special entry-level players as the new battle because we're not used to seeing them gobble up so much cap space in term right out of entry-level. But it's happening because they are that good and that important to their teams already. So it's, it's not just that the marketplace is changing in front of our eyes. The game is changing. I mean, we're used to these, these guys, other than a handful, most of these young players needing more time to become these players. But now it's happening right out of the gates. And, and so it's really, I think, turning the NHL on its ear in all kinds of ways. And Nylander is, you know, the example right now. But there's more to come in my mind. All right. 
and further ensuring that a resolution will happen two seconds after we tape this. Frank, what's your gut tell you? Are, are we talking about William Nylander in a lineup Saturday evening or whenever the Leafs play after Saturday night? Does it, does it happen that way? Or how do you, what's your, what's your gut tell you on how this unfolds? Yeah. My gut tells me that at the end of this, he signs a deal. That's a long-term deal that, you know, keeps the Leafs in the budget that they need right around 7 million bucks, more than they probably wanted to spend by a million or 750,000. And it keeps him in a spot where he feels like he's not going to be immediately undone by Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner next summer. So that's the key for him. I just can't envision a situation in which he's sitting out. It's not that the Leafs need him for December and January, which it always helps to have a guy like him. They need that one extra weapon in the playoffs that you can have in your lineup when you get to April, May, and June. That's the difference maker when you can add one of those guys and keep them in your lineup for a while. And then I think after that, once you get to the summer and moving forward, all bets are off in terms of what happens with Nylander and the Leafs. Yeah. Pierre, what's your gut tell you? Do we... Do we, do we see the opposite? Do we see uh, a, a potential trade? And you've been writing about this as well. Lots of teams obviously interested in, in a guy like Nylander and there are needs on that Leaf team. What, what's your gut tell you how this plays out uh, in the next two minutes between now when we end this podcast and when something does happen for real? Yeah, I don't sense that the Leafs have heard from teams anything that would make them want to trade him now. So yeah. that even if he's not signed, by this week's deadline, I feel like if he's ever going to be traded, it'll be either before February 25th or in the offseason. Having said that, I, I, I'm with Frank. I think he will sign. And again, neither side is talking, but just reading between the tea leaves from other people I've talked to with the two sides moving over the past couple of weeks, I, I certainly feel like the Leafs got to a point last week where they feel strongly about how much they, you know, where they had gotten to and that and that they feel Nylander really should sign that deal. And I think probably what's happening is, you know, if, if you're the Lewis Gross and William Nylander, why not go right to the deadline to see if you can't move that deal just a bit more? I, I, I don't censor that far apart. Uh, is it enough philosophically to still stop this thing from happening? I, I, despite all the, the tension, I don't think so. I, I think ultimately it does get done. Yeah. All right. All right, boys, that has been a ton of fun and a perfect way to bring to a close the first segment of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. Frank, a treat to have you. Let's do it again. And uh, and thanks for thanks for helping to edify us and to uh, to join us today. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. It just feels weird not doing it over a beer. <laughs> well, let's let's uh, reconvene in San Jose. Maybe we'll do we'll tape it live in San Jose uh, at my favorite place called the Caravan. How about that? I'm in. I, I'm just <laughs> I, I'm just remiss that we didn't talk about the battle for the NFC East. But anyway, I guess we can chat about that. Another <laughs> time. Time. Yeah, that. another time. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you, Frank and Pierre. Don't go away because we'll be back uh, shortly with the second segment of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. All right, everybody, here we go. As promised, back in a flash with the second segment of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. Now, Pierre Lamorne, I know that you are here, but you're going to step away for a minute. I assume you're going to 
I don't know, do some renovations or whatever you're going to do. But uh, you are going to step away for a moment. But I am happily going to be chatting with a couple of colleagues of ours, Lisa Dillman, who covers the LA Kings and the Anaheim Ducks for The Athletic and lots of uh, news going on in Los Angeles of late. And then... Joe Smith, our man in Tampa, is going to join. So we're going to chat um, some Tampa Bay Lightning and maybe some interest in what's going on in Los Angeles. So, Pierre, go and do what you got to do, and we'll talk to you at the other end. Okay? You good with this? Sounds like (laughs) a plan. All right, man. Let's talk to you in a bit. All right. What, this is such a great treat, and I'm, I'm sorry that Pierre Lebrun has stepped away and is unable to join in this conversation, but it's kind of good for me because I get to talk to Lisa Dillman, a longtime friend and colleague and now co-worker at The Athletic. And so, Lisa, it's just you and I, but frankly, you know, no disrespect to Pierre, it's probably just as well for both you and I that uh, we, it's just the two of us chatting. My last vision of Pierre was um, cooking at the grill wearing, uh, I think he was wearing um, his Mighty Ducks uh, apron when he was uh, grilling for us at his cottage last summer. (laughs) That is a fine image. And uh, yes, he did a fine job. I I feel badly now about having thrown him under the bus, but because he did cook up some fine steaks uh, that evening and some trout, if I'm not mistaken, was very, uh, very pleasant and uh, nice evening uh, for us in, in, uh, north of Toronto in the summer. So that was very good. Now, at least I know that you are, you're, you've got one foot out the door. You're in Vancouver. You've been with the Los Angeles Kings and headed off to Western, further Western Canadian environs uh, with the Los Angeles Kings. But I just thought it was, it would be a great time to catch up with you because I mean, so much has happened with that Kings team since the start of the season, both on and off the ice. And I wanted to touch base with you on that, but really that for me, I've been following with great interest uh, the, the ups and downs of former Atlanta Thrashers star and, of course, New Jersey Devil star after he uh, he departed Atlanta. But Ilya Kovalchuk, uh, it's it has been kind of a wacky kind of set of circumstances for him and, and sort of came to a head earlier this week. He was benched for the third period of a game and late, late into the second, if I understand it correctly, and sort of playing a much more diminished role when he has been on the ice, playing sort of a fourth line role and second power play time if he's getting on the ice even then. And I wonder, what's, what's the whole, what's the deal with Ilya Kovalchuk and, and this wacky Kings team? <laughs> well, I don't think anybody could have predicted this, you know, that, okay, he's going to leave the KHL after five years away from the NHL, come back to much fanfare, their prized, you know, off-season acquisition, heavy courtship period, all, all this talk, uh, you know, he came in, came in firing away saying, this is my best chance to win, I want to win the cup. Okay, I don't think he in his biggest nightmares could have envisioned what has happened. Uh, like you said, the fourth line, you know, 27 seconds of power play time on Saturday against the Canucks glued to the bench Sunday. And then, and then of all things, uh, I'm sure we'll get to this, but you know, Willie Desjardins doubles, doubles down and um, keeps him on the fourth line. I mean, he played a little bit more last night, but he, he essentially doubled down in a meaningful way. So I, I mean, I'm sure Ilya Kovalchuk saying, Hey, can folks, can I have a do over here? 
<laughs> well, like it's such an eye, you know, and for me, just the interesting. You mentioned Willie Desjardins, of course, the interim head coach, taking over for John Stevens after the team got off to a, a grisly start to the regular season, and Rob Blake, the GM, making the change there and bringing in Willie Desjardins, and, and just I, even the verbiage I thought was so odd when when you guys, the reporting crew following the team, was asking him about what was going on with Kovalchuk, and it wasn't, you know, you sort of sometimes you hear a coach will say, well, I he needs to get going or he needs to do this more and more. And it was almost like, well, no, this is probably unusual for him because he's not used to playing fourth line minutes. And I'm really playing to his weakness, which is, I just thought it was such an odd thing. And I wonder, do you, what do you, is there a message being sent here? What, what is, what do you, what is the narrative here with how this is unfolding for, for really Desjardins and the Kings and for Kovalchuk? You know, I know Scotty. We've been we've been around a long time, and I, I I don't know about you, but I don't think I have ever heard a coach phrase it quite like that. I'm making him play his weaknesses. I mean, I don't at least in covering this team and then being around the NBA, I've never heard a coach say that. I almost felt like I had, I, I, I hate to use this analogy, but I almost felt like we were in an episode of The Apprentice. Yeah, you know? <laughs> some weird Machiavellian, you know, uh, weird negative reinforcement. It's it's. You know, yeah, he's saying when somebody's always been a top, on the top two lines, and you're on the fourth line, it's going to be hard. He acknowledges that. Okay, fine. It's going to be hard for him to find his game. So how does he find his game? Well, I'm going to keep him there, and (laughs) and and I'm not going to put him on the power play where he was brought in to help fix it. I, I, and, and the other thing, the other thing, I'll get back to that in a second. The other thing that's quite confounding is. The, the first 14 games of the season, you know, he had 14 points. You know, he he was one of the few players con- delivering on a consistent basis for John Stevens. And you know, John Stevens seemed to find, you know, find a way to use him and to get some production out of him, out of him where Willie Desjardins has not. Um, but I, like I, talking about The Apprentice again, uh, or even in a newspaper or or, or a analogy to what we do, it's almost like taking it's like taking an investigative reporter and saying, "Hey, go work in the food section for a month <laughs> and, and write about food and wine," and and where you're where you're out of place. Now, now I wouldn't mind doing that job, frankly, but yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> or, or our feature writer, our talented feature writer, or humorist, saying, "Okay, here, go work on the obituary desk for two months." It's 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 like a fish out of classic fish out of water. Yeah, it's such an odd, you know, the Kings are now, you know, I mean, and as you and I are chatting, I think they're on a two game winning streak and um, but but still rank dead last in in the NHL in terms of winning percentage uh, tied uh, for last place in the Western Conference. And, uh, you know, as we alluded to already been a coaching change, there's already been a, a fairly significant trade, I think, with Tanner Pearson going to Pittsburgh and Carl Hagelin coming back now, uh, you know, Hagelin, I expect at some point will as he's an unrestricted free agent uh, at the end of this season and you know unless things change dramatically my guess is that he'll be presumably flipped at some point before the trade deadline but certainly lots of discussion about what happens to this Kings team moving forward and it's funny uh, I'm going to chat with uh, Joe Smith our colleague from Tampa uh, after you and I get done chatting Lisa and there has been some lots of mixture of scouts from both the Kings and the Lightning watching each other's games and I wonder what do you have a sense of you know, where this is trending for the Kings. I mean, I, I get there's a lot of time left. No one should be counted out, uh, you know, at, at the beginning of December uh, necessarily. But this does look like a Kings team that is going through, um, 
the, the kind of process that that lots of, of championship teams do. That re, whether it's a rebuild or a retool or whatever, they don't look like a playoff team. And it sounds like the kind of team that is open to change moving forward. And I wonder what's your what's your vibe or your take on what's going on around this team right now. Well, it, it is interesting you mentioned Tampa because I was having some communications with with Joe last night, and the, the Lightning have had uh, representatives. They were there on Sunday, and then they were there on they were there last night as well. And if I see see the you know I see the same guys show up uh, show up in Edmonton and Calgary, I'll kind of know something's up. But um, you know the the, the buzz the the names in every name except a couple seems to be in play. Um, the, the you know there's been so much talk about Alec Martinez or or Jake Muzzin. Now Jake Muzzin is is has kind of been their best defenseman really all season. So I, I don't know if that would be a very advisable move. But when you when you're in the position that they're in, you know I think you have to explore explore every option. And and and, and cycling back to the you know the Pearson Hagelin trade, it's 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 very odd how you know Pearson was just a kid who just could not get it going. And and as soon as he was traded to the Penguins, we all predicted okay he'll go there he'll score 25 goals so he seems to be seems to be well on his way he's Um, on that pace now that's right (laughs) so so i i think you know rob blake i you know second year second year on the job uh as the general manager you know last year you know didn't go perfectly but still 98 points he probably thought hey this is this is this isn't bad only to be you know thrown down the the rabbit hole of 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 a rebuild and um a, a very you know a season where everything that could go wrong pretty much has gone wrong. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. Now you mentioned, uh, you know, I mean, in terms of untouchables, I know lots of people like to to throw Drew, Drew Doughty's name uh, around, and and I think there's a special, you know, that's especially true when we think about you know the needs of a team like the Toronto Maple Leafs and a team that has the young assets that could be attractive to a rebuilding team like the Kings. Um, you know. Jonathan Quick would seem to me to be one of those kinds of of pillars that that is going to be a king, you know, going into the future. Andre Kopitar, um, you know, recently signing that a big big extension and coming off a, a terrific year for a bounce back year for him a year ago. But are there are those pieces really untouchable? Like when you think about you know the kinds of things that Rob like might entertain, is everything on the table? Are those those sort of um, franchise cornerstones, you set them to the side and, and, and really maybe look, you know, at the, the rest of the lineup or how do you, how, how wide a net do you think Rob Blake is going to cast in, in trying to turn things around there? Well, it, it is, it is really, you know, odd, you know, at the start of the season, I would have, I would have put quick in that group of untouchables now for, for many, many reasons. No, I mean, I, I would think he is, is a very attractive chip to that they have to play you know for a couple of reasons because of the emergence of of jack campbell and cal sure. peterson you know who played an, another terrific game last night you know the interesting thing is that the the, the goaltending has not been not been the issue with this team in fact i think that they've kept them alive and afloat and in a position to to, to win games uh, and, and and in fact have sort of papered over some of the deficiencies that lie elsewhere. Now, it, it's really funny, the quick contract, I was examining it and we had to do, we all, a bunch of us did stories on um, the players most likely to be traded uh, sure. at the deadline and you know, his cap number is 5-8. Um, oddly enough, and I, I've never talked to Dean Lombardi about this, but you know, quick doesn't have a, a no move or no trade clause. So, 
so their hands are not tied there. Um, you know, in these days, everybody seems to have one <laughs> and, yeah. and he does not. Now he's been injured twice already. Um, he's probably will play, I would think in Edmonton or in Calgary, probably in Edmonton. So he's off our IR. He's ready to go. Um, but I don't know about you. And I, I know, Big time goalies like that, big name goalies are not moved usually in season. But I was, I'm wondering whether he would be the exception. And I, I do think he's a chip to play um, in regard to Dowdy and Kopitar. I still think, I still think, it's it's a healthy debate. But I still think they do fall into the untouchable category. Yeah, it's it's funny you should mention Jonathan Quick, and it's because this season there are teams that are in obvious need of, of goaltending help. You know, now St. Louis is one. Now they were actually tied with the Kings in terms of points right now at the bottom of the Western Conference standings, but already making coaching change um, in St. Louis. That's an issue there. The goaltending in Philadelphia, where they just made a. a, a GM change of a guy you know well from his time in Los Angeles with Ron Hextall going. Um, you know, what does Columbus do with Sergei Bobrovsky uh, looking like he might head out the door? Is, you know, if they're, and they're certainly, uh, you know, sitting atop the Metropolitan Division. Um, if they are going to move Bobrovsky, they're a team that would, would want to, to backfill with a true number one. Uh, I think it's interesting, even a team like Carolina, Curtis McElhaney has been uh, lights out, uh, but is that a sustainable thing? And with Scott Darling playing poorly, you know, the Canes also have assets that might be attractive to a, to a, G, a GM looking to, to retool as Rob Blake is. So I, I think it, you raise an interesting point, Lisa, that it's, that Jonathan Quick, given his resume, uh, there have to be a lot of, of teams around the NHL going, well, listen, if, if there's a chance to upgrade at the position, even with his injury issues, that that would certainly be, you would have to think there would be lots of interest in him. Do you think? Yeah, I would really think so. And, and and like I said, I would not have, this probably wouldn't have been part of our conversation, you know, in sept- September, but I didn't expect Jack Campbell to play as well as he did. And, and Cal Peterson especially was really an unknown. I mean, he had, he did have a very strong season in the AHL last year with Ontario, but you know, you can't, you can't, you sort of have to wait and see what he can do. So, so, you know, as we were, this was a very good exercise actually to, to do this <laughs> trade story. So, so early, you know, I don't, I can't remember ever doing one in November, but then I can't remember a season quite like this, <laughs> but I, I think, uh, I think the trade deadline for the Kings will be absolutely fascinating. I, you know, in the position that they're in and, and being, you know, being sellers, not buyers. Yeah. Well, and just before I let you go, see if we can circle back to uh, our our old friend Ilya Kovalchuk, and he has. You mentioned uh, as we and we began this segment, uh, three year deal signed in the off season. Now he's an older player, so his contract as a as an older plus thirty five player comes with um, you know sort of red flags, I suppose, for an acquiring team. And he has a no trade, no move in this season. But I, I mean, is there an element of you know? Where he is, his role is obviously not what anyone expected it would be. Uh, ice time down, playing on the fourth line. I mean, is this the kind of treatment that perhaps is a precursor to saying, "Hey, it's it's really not working out here. Would you consider going somewhere else?" My, you know, I know Pierre LeBrun, our our, our good 
pal and, and colleague suggested that he's, you know, Ilya Kovalchuk has been nothing but a good soldier about this. He has, um, he's seems committed to being in Los Angeles and with the Kings. He's got his family there, but to never say never. And I wonder is, is this possibly something that says, Hey, you know, is there a middle ground where, where both sides agree that maybe it would be best early in the relationship to pursue something else? Yeah, I guess I'm not ruling out anything at this stage, and and I think I think you know that is probably several several steps away. I mean, Ilya's you know they've moved his family to Beverly Hills. His wife's ensconced there. His I think his daughter's taking singing and acting lessons. Um, his kid, one of his kids, is playing for a youth soccer team. Another another one of his boys is playing hockey. So his family has has really tried. You know, they've really established you know meaningful you know roots. Well, I wouldn't say roots, but they they've settled in. All right. Well, Lisa, I could talk all day uh, with you about hockey and the Kings and everything, but I know you have to get on your way. So we want to thank you for dropping by Two Man Advantage, the podcast, and let's do it again. I hope you're dressed warmly and and enjoy your trip uh, throughout the rest of Western Canada. Well, I really enjoyed being on and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. Let's do it. All right. Travel safely and always good to catch up, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you. All right, here we go. From coast to coast with athletic writers, we leave Lisa Dillman in Vancouver as she heads off to Calgary and Edmonton. And we go across country to lovely Tampa. Joe Smith, our man on the ground, actually man in his living room in Tampa. Joe, how's it going? How's the weather in Tampa? It's actually like 45 or 50 today, so it's nice fall weather, good for fire pits and actually putting sweatshirts on, which is rare for Tampa, so uh, yeah, kind of, been, kind, of, kind of digging it. Yeah, well, so it's been it's been very chilly here in Atlanta. So I, I'm with you on that. I've got I'm all, I'm all layered up. So that's a good thing. And you know, it's it's so. I mean, it's great. Uh, we couldn't make the timing work to get both you and Lisa on at the exact same minute, but we are in tandem here. And it was uh, it was interesting because Lisa and I were talking about the. Uh, intersection of scouting staffs from the LA Kings and the Tampa Bay Lightning uh, over the past few days, and I wonder what do you make of what do you make of all this? Now the, the Kings, uh, as Lisa and I were talking about, uh, last in the NHL in terms of winning percentage, and a team, you know, they've already traded Tanner Pearson, so a team definitely in rebuild or retool mode. Uh, Tampa, of course, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, in a in a dogfight, in suddenly one of the most competitive divisions in the NHL and the Atlantic with Buffalo and Toronto and certainly sites set on Stanley cup material. What, what do you make of, uh, of their seeming interest in the LA Kings? Well, it, it certainly is interesting, Scotty. And I, I know like you've done this for a longer, longer than me, that it's sometimes it can be silly season when you're reading into scouting charts and, and games for, especially the trade deadline or early in the season. But when you have the agents in a short period of time and you have, uh, assistant GM for Lightning, Pat Verbeek, at a Kings game a couple days ago, and a couple scouts here in Tampa for the Kings last night in, uh, for the Lightning Ducks game that aren't usually here. Uh, it's, it's worth at least noting and kind of exploring and seeing where there could be a fit. And, you know, the, the Kings appear open for business in mode, and um, I think a couple names that would be of interest, I'm sure. Um, to the Lightning, or just of interest in general, are, are, are Jake Muzzin and Alec Martinez, a couple of the yeah. defensemen there. Um, you know, and I think the key, the question that I'm kind of wondering myself from the Lightning perspective is, where is the real need, or where is the huge need? There's not a lot there at this point. The so so uh, 
strong that they've got to make some tough decisions in their top six when Andre Palat comes back to the lineup early this Thursday. And you have guys like Adam Ernie and Dan Martell who will probably be healthy scratches. And, and on the blue line, unless Anton Strallman injury is worse than the people expected and we're hoping to have an update today on him, um, they're not a huge need there. Maybe next year, you know, be finding a guy like a Muzzin or Martinez who could be in that situation after the three veteran guys, Coburn, Girardi, and and Strawman go off the books this summer. So uh, there's cap issues as well. It's just, but it's just interesting. You never know how these things work. You never know. Maybe it's prospects for prospects. I know they were watching the OHL Ontario Reign as well. So, uh, but it's at least it's at least worth exploring and seeing where the fit might be for a team, the Lightning, who with Julian Breesball, the first year GM, who might be interested in making a, a move to, to upgrade or, or help its its team's chances in a very difficult and challenging uh, Eastern Conference. Yeah. Was it, Joe, you mentioned uh, Julian Breeswell, and of course, uh, with Steve Eiserman stepping aside and then presumably at the uh, the end of the year, you know, heading back to Detroit or, or wherever he's going to go um, after parting ways with the uh, um, with the Lightning. Ha- have you noticed a change? Like, is there a, you know, is there a change? I mean, Julian Breeswell is a different guy than Steve Eiserman, different personality. And, you know, it's a team that is so well built. And you talk about the the young players in that lineup. And I mean, Braden Point is uh, having, you know, a, a banner year offensively up front. We know about Kucherov. We know Stamkos. It, it really is a team that, again, looks to be built for the long haul come playoff time. It looks like a team that, you know, is going to be considered one of the top teams in the Eastern Conference. It has, have you noticed changes since since Steve Eiserman has stepped aside and Julian Breezebaugh has taken over in, in what is his first uh, run as being uh, the sole GM of a, an NHL team? Well, honestly, I haven't seen too much of a difference. Maybe some subtle changes here and there. We talked to some scouts of people within the organization and players, and they haven't really felt too much of a ripple there. I mean, Steve Eiserman is still around. Uh, he's been at a few games on this homestand. Uh, he's still part of the decision-making process. Sure. He worked hand-in-hand with since they kind of joined the Tampa Bay Lightning together in 2010 uh, as kind of a tandem, and they've had the same belief and philosophy in terms of what kind of players that they want to to acquire and, and develop and, and that type of thing. Um, so I think there hasn't been an overall shift in philosophy or, or major change. I think they're kind of just building on what what you know Steve Eisenman put a, put there and, and built and geared the Lightning. And you know, Julian Baseball has had made his own kind of moves here with Jake Dodgson, you know, eliminating his contract in September, which was kind of a controversial move. And he re-signed Yanni Gord uh, early this season um, to a long-term deal with a $5 million cap hit, uh, which made people by surprise with the cap crunch coming this summer. But, you know, I think there have not been many kind of huge overall with the way this team has been run, which is why I think they've made, they kind of felt it'd be kind of a business as usual, uh, kind of handing off the baton from Eiserman to, to Julian Breesball. And it certainly has been that. Uh, the true test will be, you know, on the deadline, we see what the what Breezeball does, or if they actually can win the Stanley Cup with both those guys' names on it uh, before we never know what happens next summer. But uh, I think overall, it's been a pretty transition so far. Yeah, it's interesting, and it, I mean, there's there there the the Lightning for me are one of those teams that they they ooze stability, and even this the whole transition process is has been so orderly with uh, at least from the outside it looks this way that you know every everyone was on the same page. Uh, this was a decision that. Uh, 
you know, didn't catch. It may have caught the public by surprise, but these are, you know, that this was well thought out. And so the transition has been a seamless one. You know, the, the one thing that I think has been interesting from a, you know, playing on ice perspective with Andre Vasilevsky hurt, you wondered if there would be, you know, does, was that the kind of thing that would send ripples through the team? But it seems like the team has played very well in his absence. And I wonder if, that, you know, how important it is maybe to get through this period where, um, their top young starting netminder is is away from the team or away from action, you know that you maybe learn some stuff about your organizational depth and and wonder how you you felt the team has responded to that. Oh, certainly, and I think if you ask, I think if they'd be five and two in their first seven games after Vasilevsky went down, I think they'd be willing to take that any day of the week. And sure, I just think it, um, you know, overall it, it shows kind of the confidence that they have in, in Louis Domingue. Uh, remember, he was uh, under the radar acquisition last November on the scrap heap from Arizona who cut him loose and, and put him on waivers because uh, they wanted a kind of a fill-in or replacement for Peter Budai, who was kind of struggling and then eventually got injured um, in December. So, you know, that move made paid off big dividends now, knowing Vasilevsky is out for four to six weeks. And Yip Deming, who's really kind of, you know, gathered some of his confidence back and, and played really um really really solid the last couple of weeks and he'll be carrying the load again on uh, the next couple of weeks the team has, has had its ups and downs and it hasn't played perfect but it's found a way to win games and they can definitely outskill some of their issues for sure yeah i'm curious just before i let you go and uh, and get on with your fall day in tampa when you look at the atlantic are you is this how you thought it would would sort of shake down certainly with Tampa and Toronto being at the top. I mean, obviously Buffalo, probably the surprise team on a, on a positive side in the NHL. Uh, I believe as of their victory on uh, Tuesday evening, I think they're, they're number one in the NHL in points and might be number one in, in winning percentage. But now that you've got these three teams really chasing each other and yeah, Boston really nicked up and, and, you know, has sort of fallen you know, beneath that top three group. But I wonder what you make of the Atlantic and, and how important it is for whichever team it is that, that to, to attain that number one spot to, to avoid what looks like it might be a very grueling two, three first round playoff matchup uh, within the division. I think there's no, and we saw it last year with the lightning getting that first seed and, and avoiding that first round series of the Boston trying to let them beat each other up. Before that second round series for the Lightning, really, I think, surprised a lot of people, by the way, they handled the, the Bruins there, who was kind of their arch nemesis during the year. But I, I think it's, I, I mean, surprising to me, obviously, Buffalo saw them a couple weeks ago. We'll see them tomorrow night for a big showdown in Tampa with the Lightning. But it's been really impressive. We'll see what their staying power is and if they can kind of mix in that top three with Toronto and, and Tampa and Boston. But there's, there's no question, I think, in my mind that it's a very a big priority to get that number one seed, not only for home ice, but. You know, you know how good Toronto is going to be up the middle. You know how good Boston will become playoff time when they're healthy if they get Bergeron back. So, um, you know, that's why I think this injury to Vasilevsky was a big test of the light. And you see if they hold down the forward and stay within distance and stay on top while they lose their top number one goaltender, who now will probably be a lot more fresh going into the playoffs, having to miss a month or so of action. So he can be a guy who they can care, they can lead the this team through the, the playoff run. Yeah. 
That's great. Good stuff, my friend. Well, I think it's uh, time for us to move on and time for you to get back to your nice, crisp fall day in Tampa. But uh, Joe Smith, uh, thanks for joining us. And of course, fans can follow your work uh, with the Lightning at uh, The Athletic. And uh, thanks for dropping by. Let's let's, uh, pick this up again as the season moves along. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Scotty, and happy holidays to you. Yeah, you too, my friend. Take care. Well, it's it's always uh, it's always terrific to talk to our colleagues, Pierre, and both Lisa and Joe. I, I thought uh, were excellent talking about teams at opposite ends of the spectrum and opposite ends of the drama. Uh, chart, if you will, in the NHL. But you know, you and I were talking about it uh, before we we started taping. But it, it, what do you make of the the interest that the Lightning seem to have in what's going on in Los Angeles? The scouts from both teams looking at each other's rosters fairly closely in recent days. Do you, do you read too much into stuff like that, or do you? Is there sort of you know where there's smoke, there's fire kind of stuff? Yeah, I try not to read too much into it. I think often we get caught up where guys end up being on certain travel schedules that happen to catch certain teams. I don't know. I I've learned over the years that more often than not, it's dangerous to read the scouting chart and, and overplay that. Now, having said that LA on its own is a team that who knows what else Rob Blake will do because of the disappointment that's there. Right. Uh, so I think that's fair to, to say, but in terms of Tampa, I, I think Julian Breeze was going to be careful. I think that the lightning, Gave up a lot for Ryan McDonough last year at the trade deadline. Um, you know, thankfully for them, they re-signed him. And he's playing lights out for them, too, by the way. Yeah. But but I don't know that they want to go to that well every year uh, and give up future assets year after year after year. I think the Lightning want to win now. But I also think they hope of being a, a franchise that sticks around as a contender for a long time. So, you know... I do think that if the Lightning adds, it would be on defense between now and uh, and the trade deadline on February 25th. A little little more depth there. Uh, But I also think that Julian Breesville will be judicious that way. Yeah, well, I asked Joe this, of course, but and, uh, and I'm curious about what you, what your take is. You know, I mean, we're still just heading into December, so it's still early in the going. But do you guys, I mean, do you have any sense of, you know, the transition seems to have been so smooth with uh, Steve Iserman, you know, still with the organization, but obviously stepping aside and Julian Breezebaugh, you know, putting his mark on the team in the early going as, as the team's GM. Yeah, like, is there, I don't think there's any pressure on him between now and the deadline to, you know, to sort of, you know, make this team his own or to make a splash and whether it's adding a veteran defenseman, you know, whether it's an Alex Martinez or Jake Muzzin or whatever he decides to do. Do you think there's any pressure there or, or really is this one of those teams that it's going to be totally dictated by circumstance, you know, assuming that they're healthy come trade deadline time that, you know, maybe they don't do too much at all. Or what's your sense on a first year GM approaching his first trade deadline? Yeah, I'd be surprised if Julian Breesboy felt any kind of pressure that way. Uh, first of all, it's not like he's a new GM coming from another organization and and sort of having to, you know, put his stamp on things. He's been there all along. I mean, he's right. been right at Steve Eisenman's side, uh, nego- help negotiate all the contracts, help negotiate through trades. I mean, he's been part of the thinking all along in the building of this team. So why would he deviate from what their plan was? And, um, and on top of that, Steve Eisman's still there, uh, 
in terms of you know getting a very important consult and advice and sure uh so i i i think it's been as smooth as you could possibly imagine in terms of a transition and uh and because of that um anything that breezewood does between now and the trade deadline i think would have been the kind of thing that they would have done if steve eisman was still a gm in my mind yeah yeah no i think that makes perfect sense and that's a perfect segue because there is nothing if not smoothness about you, my friend. And I think that's a good way to bring to a close this edition of Two Man Advantage. And I, the only thing that I leave you with is what could possibly happen in the NHL between now and when we tape again? Because every week there is chaos and it, it happens, you know, it gives, a, it, it gives us no shortage of uh, fodder for discussion. I just wonder, I don't know, the, the league has given us lots to work with. I just hope they don't let us down between now and next week. I, what do you think? Well, the next time we tape a podcast, we will have known whether William Nylander signed with the Leafs. So there is that. <laughs> Good point. Good point. All right, my friend. Well, until next week, uh, as always, a pleasure to uh, to hang out. We'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. See you, buddy.